Well, hello there. My co-host is on assignment this week in New Orleans doing an undercover um, investigation into the use of AI to create the perfect hand grenade cocktail. So, um, and by AI, I don't mean artificial intelligence. I mean alcohol imbibement um, as a service. So I can't wait to hear Mike's incredible story and his in-depth reporting when he is back next week. Next week, we are going to cover security. Uh, chapter 10 of the Life Sciences IT Survival Guide. And we'll have some special guests with us. It's going to be an awesome episode. It's going to be a long one, too. Um, there's a lot to cover. Very big topic, meaty. Um, and we look forward to having sort of an awesome dialogue here. Tonight, um, I'm going to be reading Chapter 9 of the Life Sciences IT Survival Guide. This is Episode 8 of the Calculus of IT Podcast. I'm Nate McBride. Mike Crispin, like I said, is not here tonight. Um, tonight's a brief chapter, so um, while I have the microphones all to myself, and because Mike's not here to tell me otherwise, I'm actually going to do a little sort of side thing. Um, I want to share some stuff with you, uh, share a thought with you that I've had, and uh, haven't been able to really sort of um, express just yet, because we, we cover so much on this podcast, but tonight I'm going to sort of dive into this a little bit. And... Um, so just just bear with me for a second. Uh, let me just have a quick little sip of my Lagavulin here. No sponsors tonight, by the way, unfortunately. Um, and I'm going to kind of jump into this idea I have. So, you know, it's pretty it's pretty clear to many who know me or listen to this podcast that even though I'm a sort of hardcore evangelist of teaching folks how to understand and properly use AI and even develop with AI, I am just as equally hardcore cynical when it comes to applying this idea that there's some sort of uber-transformative label to AI. Every day, the increasing influx of AI-related think pieces, which flood my inbox, makes me feel like, to an extent, everyone has sincerely lost their fucking minds. I mean, while the AI zeitgeist effect was gaining steam last summer, and into fall, you couldn't attend a lecture or hear a podcast or read an article without someone citing the incorrectly quoted, by the way, origin story of the radio and how we eventually got over our fears of this new radio thing and embraced it as an acceptable medium for the human race. I mean, that was my first indication when I heard this quote in two entirely different conferences, almost word for word in the same deck, that um, we were going the wrong direction with the idea of AI. I mean, in terms of contrasting fear, perhaps there's an analogy there, okay? But then it also ends there quite dramatically because we have precedent. I mean, we have the radio analogy. We have the assembly line. Oh, it's going to eliminate jobs. We have uh, the MP3. The music industry is screwed. We're never going to have music again. And now the AI, okay? So for just a moment, I want to zero in on one specific thought, and I really hope this drives home my point, that it's the idea of AI, which is what is really transformative. The actual use of AI exists in a spectrum of clever technology, which may eventually solve some problems and may eventually create others, but will take so long to get there because first, everyone has to make money off of this thing. I mean, is anyone going to use AI to solve poverty? 
Probably not right now. Or what about uh, systemic drug abuse across the U.S. or other countries? Probably not today. What about fixing mass transit? I mean, great idea. We could probably do some work there with AI, but where's the money to be made right now? Maybe later. And that's like a, a later stage problem. So that a, that like the idea that AI is said to be the grease which will make us more productive or make our work output improve or some combination thereof is overlooking the question of who said we need to be more productive. And that productivity is somehow like this solution to the imagined problems we're creating because we're doing that. And think about it. Who or what is compelling us to be more productive? Why is AI all of a sudden this answer to increased um, upswings of anything? I mean, the media, of course, the investors, the people who need people to use AI under the premise that you can get better answers faster. But, But so what? I mean, is that true? So what do you do after that moment? Let's suppose that it's true. Let's suppose that AI is going to make you more productive. Then what are you going to do? You're going to just continue to be more productive until you reach some sort of productive nth level. I mean, you can only make so many shitty presentations and populate your LLMs with passable, barely passable human content or have the factories continue to pump out plastic pieces of crap that, you know, we can sell this many more units if we use AI. But why not use AI to make better decisions? Like, why focus the lens on productivity and increasing our ability to do more as opposed to increasing our ability to be better? I mean, to solve real problems instead of fabricated problems. It's not some panacea to making companies profitable, except for those companies whose job it is to sell AI or sell news about AI. I keep hearing this $3 trillion AI economy number, yet... I can't find the basis behind this. It's a really freaking big number, too. So, <clears throat> with that said, I love to read. Um, it's a passion of mine, and I read nearly every single book I can get my hands on. In fact, that's all I ask for for Christmas, birthdays, any holiday, just give me books. Um, this past weekend in the New York Times Book Review, um, A.O. Scott wrote an essay entitled what happens to literature when writers embrace AI as their muse? Those who have listened to prior episodes know I discussed this idea of the entertainment industry, including authors, fighting back against AI and even brought up a recent article from The Economist regarding the beginning of what were apparently become a very long siege. Numerous well-known names have taken up arms in this fight against AI and many of those specifically as it relates to direct copyright infringement. I mean, just Google New York Times versus AI, and you will see how entrenched the sides are in this battle. So Scott, in his essay, takes the approach of suggesting that authors could and should start using AI to create or augment new works of written art. I'll admit, I mean, I was hesitant to read this piece. I saw it in the New York Times paper, Opened it up, and I saw this here, and I was like, oh, man. And my gut instinct was to take a pass on the book review, something I normally read every weekend. But the lure of potential FUD piece and clickbait 
And the New York Times book review hooked me in. I mean, if it's going to get in there, it's got to be something. It's got to be something relevant about this. So I read it. And I'm glad I did because Scott also provides the counterpoint to the idea of using AI to write. So to a degree, any anxiety or, or worries about it were unfounded. I want to reflect on the essay first before closing out this thought. So, so in this essay, Scott states, the large language AI models that have dominated the news for the last 18 months or so represent impressive advances in syntactic agility and semantic range. And the main proof of concept for ChatGPT and other similar programs has been a flood of words. In a matter of seconds or minutes, untroubled by writer's block or other neuroses, these spectral prodigies can cough up a cover letter, a detective novel, a sonnet, or even a think piece on the literary implications of artificial intelligence. Is this a gimmick or a mortal threat to literature as we know it? So Scott goes on to say, even as writers battle the scourge of AI, many have begun to use it as a tool for making sentences. More than that, some have embraced AI as the latest iteration of an ancient literary conceit, the fantasy of a co-author, a confidant, a muse, an extra intelligence, a supplemental mental database. He discusses the latest novel from Shawn Michaels entitled, Do You Remember Being Born? Now, Michaels used GPT-3 and created what's called a Morebot, M-O-O-R-E-B-O-T, model, which was trained on the poetry of Marianne Moore in order to compose certain passages in the book. Scott says, some of the novel's prose was also supplied by AI, and the result is a charming and refreshingly non-dystopian meditation on the duality of literary creation. Whoa. Scott then references several key points about authors, each in their own way, and through their legendary works, esteemed their specific generations, who all notably sought ways to cut corners, say, over the last 200 years, even. I mean, writers like Emerson, Hugo, James, I mean, they all sought additive ways to create new writing, and this is well known. It's an interesting perspective to consider what Hugo may have done had he an AI bot aside him and sort of the writing worn. So Scott closes out the essay with this statement. Is this a matter of metaphysics or technique? Are we interested in the messengers, the chatbots, the Ouija board revenants, or in the messages that they deliver? Those messages, after all, are all about us, our fate, our origin, our fragile human essence, everything we can't figure out by ourselves. Now, I read that last part a few times after I got this um, this paper. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it, which is why I'm talking to you now. Um, my expectation is that we'll see more think pieces like this as we begin to tackle this idea of what constitutes the creation of art. And what are the responsibilities of author and consumer as we navigate this new pathway? And we can choose to use AI to circumvent our creativity much the same way we've chosen to use a calculator, for instance, to do math. I mean, when I have to do math, I pull my iPhone out, open the calculator app, and I do the math, even though I could probably do it in my head just the same way. I'm just going to shortcut that by fractions of seconds. Or maybe we can put AI in the toolbox as one more way to improve our creativity. I mean, there is a difference. 
So when Scott espouses the idea that using AI as a muse may be one way authors write works in the future, so where do we, the readers, come in? I mean, are we supposed to wonder if our favorite author took a shortcut? And if they did, so what? I mean, if that means my favorite author, the Pierce Browns, the Michael Sullivans, the Stephen Kings, and if they can create more of the work I love, don't I as a consumer end up benefiting from this? I don't have an answer to this. But consider this. AI can only create from what it already knows. Okay? And in this way, given the corpus of available knowledge for knowing, just about anything can be assembled by an AI. The same way that a musician can be trained on a specific genre of music and use that training to influence some future album. Or an artist trained in a specific style of painting and design might go on to create a Pollock-inspired piece of art. But, and this is a fact, an AI does not possess a limbic system, which means that it is not capable of emotion. There's no hypothalamus, there's no amygdala to weave the words in just such a way as to influence you, the audience. We get confused, and we're getting confused, by thinking there's an intent, and that there's a feeling, and that the AI has written a sentence just such a way, and then maybe changed it later to make the audience feel that much more moved by the act of the protagonist. It didn't. It simply took words it was trained to assemble together and did as it was told. So remember this. The ultimate purpose of the invention of AI is rooted in the principle of making a profit off of AI. And AI companies will do this through what the industry now calls this AI transformation. This is now inescapable. Okay? Claim anything else about AI, if you will, but do not mask this fact. I may look at a piece of AI-generated writing and think to myself, that's clever. But knowing there is no anima or heart, and this has me considering this on the same level as an airplane safety pamphlet, written for a purpose, devoid of feeling. So as you think about AI, I'm just giving you one perspective, and you don't have to agree, but think about for a second, if everything that's given to you, say, five years from now, is AI-generated, how much of that stuff do you want? Okay, How much of that is really going to matter to you versus the person who sits there and works all through the night to create that special piece to hand to you the next morning because you know they've put everything into it? Carl Sagan once said, Imagination will carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. Think about that. Okay, well... Thank you for listening to that. Um, I just had to say it. Mike's not here, so I don't really have sort of a, a referee or, or rules to deal with. I can just kind of sort of get that out there. We'll talk about AI over all the episodes in this show because it's important. And there's perspectives to be had, certainly. And it's important to have everyone else's perspective, too. But I just want to give you a little sort of peace of mind. So um, here we are, uh, Chapter 9 of the Life Sciences IT Survival Guide. Um, episode eight of the Calculus of IT podcast. And uh, no sponsors, like I said, this week, just you, me, and Ms. Pac-Man over there. Um, so we're going to get right into this. 
chapter nine, I don't have the audible effect because only Mike can do that. So chapter nine, communicating to the business. As you have already had your first big taste of communications with your key stakeholder meetings, you know how important it is to maintain a steady stream of feedback, updates, and information to the business. In the first 90 days, you will already be making some small changes to the company, possibly even jumping into some very large-scale implementations right away. Regardless, one of the most crucial aspects of ensuring success in these early endeavors will be on how well you communicate the business change. Now, I'm not going to give you a lecture on how or what to write in terms of exact content. Footnote. However, I would be remiss if I did not mention that you should at least consider using bluff formats for your emails, and that's B-L-U-F, Google it. With any luck, you already have a strong background in persuasive writing and grammar usage, and you can use that to your advantage, a.k.a. charm and smarm. Additionally, take some time to reflect on your past experiences, either as a sender of communications or as someone who was on the receiving end of others' communications. You should have a general awareness of what works and what does not. So I'm going to give a few examples here. There's a table at this point. I'm going to go ahead and show it up on the screen, but I'll just go through some of these. So the type of communication, for instance, would be a change to an IT process. Best method, perhaps an all-staff email or a Slack post, includes the overall relevance of the change update to the business, including what they will see and feel. Frequency, you can probably bundle all the changes into one email or post, but it is best to spread out large changes individually over time. For instance, one email every X days leading up to the actual date, including one notification at least a week before the change, and then one email the day before the change. In terms of a platform implementation, well, you don't need to email the entire company necessarily, probably an email to the affected functional lines and updates to any centralized dashboards. Includes status of implementation, any changes to the project, risk updates, potential problems. Frequency, weekly, or whatever cadence is agreed upon by the platform owners. And in terms of new technologies, that's probably definitely an all-staff email or Slack post. And it includes the importance of the new technology and how the staff will be impacted, training dates, support mechanisms, etc. Now, these are not the only types of methods you might use to communicate updates and changes to the business. But they cover a broad range of common types. Indeed, there are also other communication touch points, such as a, a help desk platform or Slack board, where you may employ different types of communications ranging from the more formal and descriptive to the less traditional. Some help desk platforms even have a bulletin option allowing you to take place custom messages in the platform's banner header. Communications in these areas tend to be one-to-one or one-to-few, and so you will adapt your style based on the customer and the severity of the issue or bulletin. When it comes to communications, especially those where you need the customers, read business, to get on board and support your changes, the only wrong amount of communication is no communication. Over the years, I have learned that it is better to err on the side of over-communication. It is also a good idea to get feedback from the business on whether you need to change your communication style. 
We will cover end-user surveys and feedback later on in this guide. But after you send out communications on a change implementation, ask people that you've, you've come to trust to give you honest feedback. Too much? Too little? Just right? Unless we forget, we still need to keep up communications with our key stakeholders in the business. Even if you only schedule 15-minute touch points once a month, you will always want to make sure that there is an open channel between yourself and the stakeholder. These open channels are where you can provide more details on your changes, solicit direct feedback, close loops on open items, and check to see if their plans are still the same as the last time you spoke to them before executing your change. Key takeaways. While it applies to everyone in the business, IT communications are essential in maintaining positive relationships between IT and the business. You should develop and maintain a regular cadence of communications for all types of activities and projects. Your communications should be flexible enough to get your point across, regardless of whether you speak to one individual or the entire organization. It is better to over-communicate than to provide no communication. Use all of your available communication tools to adequately spread your message, especially regarding changes that will directly impact the end users. Get feedback on your communication effectiveness from members of your audience whom you trust. Ask them what their thoughts are, and then make adjustments as necessary. It is not essential to completely overhaul your style. After all, your style represents you. Communicate early. Communicate often. Pro tips. In your email platform, develop templates for the most common types of communications you will use. Then it's just a matter of filling in the blanks whenever you have to send out that type of communication to a group. Never CC the organization or a large group when sending out a communications email. Always BCC the organization or group. This is a no-brainer, but don't be patient zero when it comes to furthering their spread of the reply-all virus. Use a different font style, greeting, and sign-off for your emails than the rest of the organization. This accomplishes two goals. Number one, <clears throat> it makes your email stand out just enough <clears throat> to let people know this is an IT message. And two, it also helps in phishing prevention, as only the most professional fishers would guess as to the greeting, sign-off, and font type you use for your internal emails. This is the right approach in general for any person who is a valuable phishing target. Things to watch out for. In the early days, one thing I used to add to my closing paragraphs routinely was, if you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to contact me directly. Yet no one ever did. Or if they did, it was as if they hadn't gotten past the subject line of my email. As it turned out, so few people got far enough into my emails to even see that statement. My emails were just way too long. As my friend Steve used to say, stop trying to cram 10 pounds of shit into a 5-pound bag. Footnote, myth for the record, Mythbusters proved you cannot do this. Keep the messages short and sweet. Again, I refer back to the bluff format. <clears throat> don't use direct messages on Slack for longer critical messages. And don't use an email just to say thanks. Make sure you apply the best medium for the type of communication. I'm guilty of this myself, though I do it far less frequently these days. In short, if you want to text somebody, you can do something really short. A DM, just as short, maybe a little bit longer. An email, something that's a little bit broader than that. I mean, 
<clears throat> so that's really it, I suppose. Uh, I don't have someone here to argue against me or tell me this chapter was shit. So I'm not going to argue with myself over the point of communicating to the business. It's kind of a no-brainer. Um, so that's me signing off, I guess, for the night uh, with our regular programming. And like I said, next week is security. We're going to have some special guests with us. And um, I forgot to say this last week, but don't be a dick, especially to IT. And I saw a bumper sticker the other day in a car, and I, I bet you've probably seen it, but it says, wag more, bark less. Um, that's something to live by, actually. Do that. Wag more, bark less. Don't be a dick, especially to IT. And cheers.